Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Wednesday the 15th of August 1945, 9am Australian Eastern Standard Time, and a radio broadcast from London by the recently elected British Prime Minister Clement Attlee is being heard across the nation. Japan has today surrendered. The last of our enemies is laid low. When Mr Attlee's broadcast finishes at 9.30, Ben Chifley, Australian Prime Minister for just a month after the death of John Curtin, takes to the airwaves. Fellow citizens, the war is over. The Japanese government has accepted the terms of surrender imposed by the Allied nations. Australia's cities erupt with joy. In Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, where the business day has already begun, it now stops as workers go to office windows to unleash snowstorms of confetti. Hundreds, then thousands and then tens and hundreds of thousands of people stream into the city streets. Friends, co-workers, perfect strangers, soldiers and civilians. They hug, kiss, cry and dance as the air is filled with cheering, singing and the blaring of ship sirens and the honking of car horns. A man pirouettes along Elizabeth Street in Sydney for the movie tone newsreel camera, making himself an iconic image of that day's dizzy jubilation. And that night, one million people party in Sydney's streets and parks, half a million fill Melbourne, and record crowds pour into other capital cities. These celebrations will continue over a two-day holiday. And there'll also be, of course, commemorations for the more than 39,000 Australians who've been killed in the past six years of fighting. Happily, so many more are coming back alive. Yet, amid the anticipation of the return of loved ones, a sombre note is sounded in that day's Sydney Sun newspaper. John Quinn, a war correspondent who's been with the AIF in the Middle East and New Guinea, pens an article headlined, How Veterans Feel After Years of War. And it includes this, quote, The red years of war cannot easily be forgotten by the fighting men. They cannot put the memory away as a man puts away his overcoat at winter's end. There is so much to remember. John Quinn continues, The threads of civilian life will be picked up again, and in many cases, slowly and painfully. For it's hard for a man returning from the wars to settle back to the routine of peaceful life. It will take time to lay the ghosts, but they will be laid and 10 years from now, much of the ugly and miserable will fade from memory and even the jungle won't seem so bad. 4,000 miles northwest of Sydney, at Changi Prison in Singapore, word of Japan's surrender is first heard on radios that prisoners of war have kept carefully hidden from their captors. 
news spreads the next morning, by which time the Japanese guards are gone. Soon after that, American planes start airdropping supplies. But it won't be until the 5th of September that the 17,000 POWs gathered in Changi are liberated. Back home, the joy at the salvation of these men and other POWs from other camps will be accompanied, though, by horror as Australia learns of the atrocities they've suffered. During the weeks and months following the celebrations of Victory Over Japan Day, the newspapers are filled with revelations of massacres, executions, tortures, brutalities, starvation and disease. There are also remarkable tales of survival, bravery and endurance. Among the many stories, one stands out. Colin Fleming Bryan, a young digger who, before he even got to Changi, survived an attempted beheading execution. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. This episode is a little different in that while I'll be telling much of the story and providing context, we're also going to hear from the man himself, Colin Fleming Bryan. Colin died in 2013, but 30 years before that, he was interviewed by veteran Australian journalist Tim Bowden as part of the ABC radio series Prisoners of War, Australians Under Nippon. Tim was kind enough to give me permission to include excerpts from the unedited interview. Other sources used in this episode include newspapers found at the National Library of Australia's Trove database, family, police and military records from Ancestry.com.au and the National Archives of Australia, transcripts of the war crimes trials held in 1946 in Tokyo, and information taken from Colin Bryan's genealogical research, which he published privately in three books, later referenced in Philippa Gemmell Smith's 2004 book, Thematic History of Oberon Shire. Colin Fleming Bryan's grandfather, William Bryan, was born in Omar Island in 1839 and came to Australia when he was about 20 years old. He settled near Oberon at Fish Creek in western New South Wales, where he farmed a 34-acre block of land. In 1867, William married Mary Jane Fleming, who was the daughter of a Central West pioneer family. The couple were to have eight children, and he'd build for them a homestead he called Ferndale. William died in 1882 at the age of just 43, though Mary was to remarry a neighbour two years later. Mary and William's seventh child, son Francis, born in 1878, joined the New South Wales Police Force and became a probationary constable in November 1903. From there, we can follow his career through regional New South Wales via Police Gazette's Founded Ancestry and the occasional newspaper article Founded Trove. Francis would be stationed at Goudiga, Mogul and Orange and enjoy promotions that saw him attain rank of first-class sergeant. Frank married a woman named Agnes Shear in November 1912 and they had their first child, Arthur, in 1913. Sadly, this little boy died in 1916, though the following year the couple had another son, Gavin, and daughter Heather came the year after that. Next was Lindsay in 1920. And then... Colin Fleming Bryan, born on the 18th of October 1922 at Warren, where his father was then stationed. This big family, and there'd be three more daughters, Jean, Mary and Joy, lived at Warren until 1928 when they upped stumps for Tumbarumba. After that, Narandera, where Colin went to intermediary school. Then Junee, where he finished his education. Around 1937, Francis retired from the police force, a vice-sergeant after nearly 35 years' service. Done with the country life, the Bryans moved to Dremoyne in Sydney. Colin had grown into a handsome young chap with a fair complexion, dark eyes, light brown hair, and he stood six feet tall, though he was slender. Colin got work as a clerk in an accountancy firm, and he studied the profession by night. According to his mother Agnes, he was a bright, quiet lad, more interested in reading than going out. His older brother Lindsay was the first to join the services when he enlisted in the Royal Australian Navy in December 1938. On the 23rd of May 1940, with the Germans smashing British and French forces back to the Channel and the Nazi threat now fully realised in Europe, Colin's oldest brother, Gavin, enlisted in the army. 
just two days after that, tragedy struck the Bryan family when daughter Heather died in Balmain Hospital, aged just 21. On the 19th of October, the Bryans farewelled Gavin when he sailed for the Middle East with the 7th Division's 2nd 13th Battalion. On the 4th of April 1941, the 2nd 13th became the first Australian Army unit to fight German soldiers during World War II when, covering the British withdrawal from Benghazi, they spread out over seven miles to try to delay the enemy advance at the Ur Rajima Pass. Gavin Bryan and his mates faced 3,000 Germans in lorries, protected by tanks and armoured cars. Outnumbered 3 to 1 and forced to use captured Italian weapons, the Australians were in places overrun, but they fought fiercely through the afternoon and into the night before transport arrived and they were able to withdraw. Five soldiers of the 2nd 13th were killed, and 93 men were missing in action. At the end of the month, Australian newspapers started publishing casualty lists from this battle. There, on the 27th of April, was Gavin's name, listed as missing in action. Still grieving Heather's death, it must have been awful for Francis and Agnes Bryan to wonder what had become of Gavin in far-off Benghazi. The next entry in his military record found at the National Archives of Australia is dated the 25th of May, quote, now confirmed prisoner of war. In September that year, Gavin was transferred to a POW camp in Italy. That had to be a relief for the Bryan family, even as they continued to worry about how he was being treated by the fascists. On the 20th of October 1941, the Bryan's youngest son followed in the footsteps of his older brothers. Two days after he turned 19, Colin Fleming Bryan enlisted in the 2nd AIF. All three Bryan boys were now in uniform. After that, things moved fast. On the 7th of December 1941, while Colin was still doing his training, the Japanese launched their devastating surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. What's less remembered is that in the hours before that, the Japanese began their assault on Malaya. Their plan was a lightning-fast invasion south with the object of capturing Singapore, Britain's supposedly impregnable Southeast Asian fortress, within 100 days. Following his army training, Colin enjoyed pre-embarkation leave with his family over Christmas and New Year. On the 10th of January 1941, he sailed as part of the 2nd 19th Infantry Battalion, reinforcements of the 8th Division now fighting the Japanese in Malaya. Colin arrived on the 24th of January. By then, Australian, British and Indian soldiers, hampered by chaotic leadership, had spent six weeks fighting and retreating as the Japanese blitzkrieg pushed ever south. Battles often involved Allied troops mounting bloody bayonet charges. The reason for this was threefold. First, there was still a belief, fostered by racist propaganda, that Japanese people were a weak and inferior race and so puny that two of their soldiers could fit on one Allied bayonet. Second, the Japanese were advancing so fast and at all costs that charging them with cold steel was viewed as effective in the sense that they'd run right into their deaths. Third, and most important, the thick jungle terrain meant close quarters fighting was inevitable and bayonets didn't need to be reloaded or jam in mucky conditions. On the 1st of February 1941, the last Allied soldiers retreated across the narrow straits of Johor, separating the island of Singapore from now occupied Malaya. The Allies blew up the causeway behind them to hinder the enemy's advance. Singapore, with 80,000 soldiers and 1 million civilians, was now cut off. The Japanese intensified their bombing raids. Invasion was inevitable, but the question was, where would it come from? The west of the island or the east? The latter was believed most likely, so the bulk of British soldiers were sent there. Colin Fleming Bryan was part of the Australian forces arrayed across the northwest of Singapore. He was one of some 3,000 men spread over 10 miles of waterfront and foreshore. Some of these men had been fighting for the past two months and were demoralised by successive defeats. Other veterans were glad to no longer be on the run and were ready to try to repulse the Japanese. 
Many other soldiers, men like Colin, were inexperienced but had some training. Then there were those who'd enlisted even later than he had and who were barely trained at all. In that first week of February, the Australians were subjected to increasing machine gun fire and artillery bombardment across the narrow strait. Then, on the night of the 8th of February, thousands of Japanese came across the water in a first wave to successfully attack Sarimban Beach. In the early hours of February the 9th, Colin and men of the 2nd 19th and 2nd 20th, perhaps 2,000 in all, faced five times that many Japanese landing at Kranji. The Japanese objective was to rush through the Australians and capture the Tenga airfield. And it was that morning that Colin Fleming Bryan, 19 years of age, came face to face with the enemy during a bayonet charge. Well, the uh, Battle of Singapore Islands was taking place on the west coast of Singapore, serving with the 2nd 9th Battalion. And uh, during a bayonet charge on the morning of the 9th of February, got uh, severely wounded by an exploding Japanese grenade, uh, wounded in multiple places. Yeah, so wounded in the cheek, face, wrist, body, legs, uh, and uh, cut a couple of veins, artery, severed a couple of nerves. Colin tended to his wounds with dressings from his own pack and he got more bandages from dead soldiers whose bodies lay everywhere he walked. He was alive, but he was now behind enemy lines and cut off from Australian forces falling back towards Singapore. Over the next few days, as Colin's wounds began to stink, he scrounged food and was given some by terrified Chinese civilians. Up to the 15th, of course, the noise of battle was incessant. But the next day, there was no noise, so I summed up that the uh, fighting had ended. Singapore, key to the British colonial empire, had fallen to the Japanese. And the Japanese had captured the city 30 days ahead of their 100-day schedule. On the other side of the world, Prime Minister Winston Churchill would call it the worst British defeat in history. And in the coming days, 80,000 Allied soldiers who'd surrendered were marched to seven camps in the area around the Changi prison. Alone in the bush, Colin wandered, hiding in abandoned houses, getting weaker and weaker. State of mind was self-preservation. Make sure I lived. Try to get back to uh, people of my own kind. Avoid uh, the Japanese, because I thought just a being captured singly, I'd be uh, killed automatically. After more than two weeks of this terrifying, furtive, fugitive existence... Well, I was captured by the Japanese sitting in a, uh, an abandoned Chinese house. Japanese platoon rushed in. I got up on my feet, put my hands above my head and hoped they'd uh, take me alive. Anyway, they took me outside and threatened me several times with you know, bayonets and swords and whatnot, but eventually they gave me uh, some uh, pineapple to uh, eat and they gave me, even gave me a cigarette, about the only cigarette I've ever smoked in my life. I've never smoked, actually, in all my uh, life, and as far as I can recall, that's the only one I ever smoked, but I did that uh, just, as I, uh, just to make sure I didn't defend them at that particular time. He was taken by the Japanese to what had recently been a convent in Singapore City. Now Colin got the feeling this was an important intelligence hub because there were generals and officers coming and going in fancy black staff cars. Uh, the Japanese intelligence officers questioned me at length whether they thought I was on some special mission. I don't know. Colin was in the presence of the Japanese brass, but he wasn't charged with any crime. His captors gave him some food, but they didn't dress his wounds. On the night of the 28th of February, Colin was told he was being taken to Changi. He was put in a truck with guards and the driver drove through Singapore's darkened streets, going in circles and getting lost before returning to the convent building headquarters. The next morning at 8 o'clock, a Japanese officer came to see Colin. He had a pistol in one hand and a length of cord in the other and he was flanked by two soldiers. This Japanese officer and his men marched Colin out the back of the convent some 100 yards into the jungle along a path to a clearing. There I saw about 
12 to 15 Japanese officers with their swords, a platoon of Japanese soldiers, and a freshly dug grave about three and a half feet deep, and a Japanese sword sticking in the earth. Well, this, uh, I was aware that something was going to happen to me, so I couldn't do much about it. The Japanese officer who had brought me to the clearing searched me, looked through my paybook, wallet, other possessions, threw them to the ground. I picked them up, put them back in my pocket. He then said, you are going to meet your God. With that, he directed me to sit down with my feet projecting into the grave. He tied my hands behind me. He unbuttoned my shirt, pulled it back over the, the back of my neck and put a, one of those small face towels as a blindfold around my eyes. Then he bent my head forward. Well, I thought to myself, this is the end, but I just couldn't uh, really come to face with it. But there was nothing I could do about it. I prayed to my God. Then I felt a heavy dull blow on the back of my neck and I felt myself falling into the grave. I fell down, I was uttering, uttering uh, unintelligible noises. I knew that at that moment that I was still alive. I thought I'd pretend to be dead, but at the same time I lost consciousness at that moment. And then everything was a blank. Coming to some time later, Colin realised that three quarters of the grave had been filled in with wooden pickets, with the remaining quarter filled in with earthen clods. And there I was, lying on the bottom of the grave, with my hands tied behind my back, the blindfold fallen down. I was covered in blood from a... Well, I could feel this terrible wound in the back of the neck. And I had a huge wound between my eyes in the forehead. How that happened, I don't know. Whether it was a rifle butt, it happened at the time that I suffered the neck wound. Hands still tied behind his back, Colin managed to twist himself and get to his feet. There was nobody around. I staggered across the clearing into tall grass, which we call kino grass or lalang grass in uh, Malaya. There I lay in the grass, in the hot sun, all that day, with my hands tied behind my back. I couldn't at that time go any further. I just laid there. When night fell, Colin got to his feet. He was weak, but he knew he had to free his hands. On the ground, he saw an empty fish tin with serrated metal edges. I bent down and got the tin, and with my fingers behind my back, of course, after a while, with sawing and that, I got the bonds free. That was a great relief. I then had to look for some water. I had no water all day. I was extremely thirsty, dehydrated, and I'd lost a terrible lot of blood. Colin found water in a Chinese squat as well. He drank, tried to wash himself, and lay down among bracken for the rest of the night. I think I had stopped bleeding sometime during that evening. Anyway... The blindfold I put round my neck to stop the flies. But within uh, maybe uh, 24 hours, the, the neck wound had become extremely fly-blind. That was annoying to me, but in a result it helped to save my life through the prevention of uh, grand green and infection. Next morning, an old Chinese woman saw Colin and, wordlessly, she gave him a beer bottle full of hot sweet milk coffee and sweet biscuits. While this bucked him up, by the night of the third, Colin realised he had to surrender. Otherwise, he'd die from his wounds or from exhaustion. The problem was now giving himself up without being shot. Later that night, Colin walked into one of Singapore's main streets. He was black with oil and mud and blood, and his clothes were in tatters. Colin covered his wounds with the towel that had been used to blindfold him. His fear was that if a Japanese soldier saw that wound and realised he'd been meant for execution, he'd be shot on the spot. 
At dawn on the 4th of March, Collins spoke through his ruined vocal cords to an Indian civilian who gave him some milk. This Indian man said his only chance of survival was to give himself up to the Malay police. This Indian man escorted him, though on the way they encountered a Japanese military policeman directing traffic. I went across to the uh, Japanese military policeman because I thought he had recognised me as an Australian soldier and that if I'd walked on past him, he would have just picked up his rifle and shot me. So I went across to him, but he waved me away. Whether he'd recognised me or not, I don't know. Maybe he didn't even recognise me as a soldier because I was so black and filthy. After that, Colin went to a Malay police station and officers there took him to an adjacent Japanese barracks. There the Japanese congregated around me, poked me, looked at me, and they questioned me about how the wounds had occurred. I said all the wounds had taken place at the same time in the actual fighting 24 days earlier. After that, I became too weak to answer any further questions. I remember laying down on the concrete floor for how long i don't know a british prisoner of war ambulance came to collect colin and took him to changi camp it was in the ambulance that colin realized he might live up to that time i i thought i could be knocked over by the japs at any time once i got on the prisoner of war ambulance i thought well things are looking good the Australian doctors at Changi didn't agree that this weak and exhausted man with 30 to 40 wounds, including a flap of skin hanging from his head injury, grenade trauma to his cheek, shrapnel in his torso and legs, and that horrific deep gouge in the back of his neck and shoulders had any chance of survival. The Australian medical staff had one look at me and thought, oh, well, he won't last any time, maybe a day. Won't bother much about him, but eventually I didn't die. And they washed me, cleaned my wounds, put me in a pair of pyjamas, and I asked for some food. After the first few days, I started to get stronger. While Colin got stronger, the neck wound remained life-threatening. The neck wound was not stitched at that time. It was an open wound, maybe an inch to inch and a half in uh, width deep. The wound had cut through all the muscle, neck muscle, had had cut into the backbone but had not severed the spinal cord so that it was not paralysed and they had to irrigate the wound to keep it clean and free of Infection. Colin was eventually put into a whole body and head plaster cast that had a window for his face and an opening for care of his neck wound. The plaster cast was to prevent him from moving and give him more of a chance to heal. Colin was cheered by visits from his mates who were amazed at what he'd survived. These men vowed to keep it quiet because if the Japanese learned the truth, they'd probably kill him. 
Changi life was hard but disciplined under the tough command of Major General Frederick Galligan, known to all as Blackjack. Under his leadership, the men largely organised themselves and they kept morale high with activities such as concert parties, bettering themselves via lectures and reading books from a lending library. Despite its subsequent reputation, there were far worse camps to be in than Changi. As the Australian War Memorial reminds us, quote, The name Changi is synonymous with the suffering of Australian prisoners of the Japanese during the Second World War. This is ironic since, for most of the war in the Pacific, Changi was, in reality, one of the most benign of the Japanese prisoner of war camps. Its privations were relatively minor compared to those of others, particularly those on the Burma-Thailand Railway. The phrase, relatively minor, is of course key here. Men still suffered and died needlessly. Colin could well have been one of them. I'd see a Japanese guard 100 yards ahead. I'd probably head for the bush. <clears throat> I'd try to keep as far away from them as possible uh, because we had various worries that if the Japanese were aware that something had happened to me, that they would come and collect me and complete the job that they omitted to do earlier. That had me worried all through the war, that one day the Japanese would come into the camp and find me and pick me up and take me out and finish the job that they had failed to do earlier. Maybe a bit nervous of all Japs, even in the prisoner war camp. So I kept away from them as, as much as possible. Of course, Colin didn't have to be beaten or beheaded to die in Changi. His military file, which was later updated from medical records kept in Changi, noted that in just nine months between August 1942 and March 1943, he was admitted to hospital for dengue and dysentery once each. He also went in with deficiency disease related to inadequate nutrition, and another time he went in with a double dose of dysentery and deficiency disease. Colin would lose 19 kilograms from his already tall and slender frame during his three and a half years of captivity. Much of this would come later though, when Changi really did go from bad to worse. Back in Sydney, Francis and Agnes Bryan could only hope and pray for all three of their boys. The last they'd heard from Colin was September 1943. As for Gavin, the invasion of Italy began that same month, but it didn't free him. He'd been transferred to Germany and was now interned in Stalag 4B. Lindsay Bryan, meanwhile, had served on the Royal Australian Navy cruiser Hobart from January 1942, and this meant he saw much action at sea, with the ship attacked by Japanese fighters and bombers while carrying out escort duties. The worst of it though came in July 1943 when Hobart was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine, killing six men and wounding seven, and putting the vessel out of action until repairs could be made. From May 1944, prisoner of war conditions for Colin Fleming Bryan and the other 5,000 Australians still at Changi got worse and worse. They were removed from their various barracks and crammed into Changi Jail alongside nearly 7,000 other Allied POWs. In such close proximity now to Japanese guards, Colin found his anxiety increasing. We'd have Japanese guards coming through the corridors. We'd be in the corridors too. We'd have to stand and salute as they passed. I was always hoping that they wouldn't stop and search me or look at me or thump me or kick me or hit me. Anyway, through uh, avoiding the Japanese guards as much as possible, I was able to escape those bashings that a lot of our other prisoners suffered. Secret radios kept the prisoners of war informed that the Japanese were losing the war. Yet, that was no guarantee that they'd live to see victory. 45 thing got really tough. Starvation rations, we lost quite a few men died of Malaria, dysentery, beriberi, most of it accentuated by the starvation. Towards the end of the war, we were so weak that it was practically impossible for us to do any real work around the camp. We only had about four 
ounces of rice per day. We tried to get as much of things like pigweed, which grows in people's backyards, to put those that in the uh, stew pot. Uh, green grass stew we used to drink to get the vitamins. Hibiscus leaf went into the uh, stew pot. Snakes, rats, mice, you name it. If it crawled, walked or flew, we grabbed it and ate it. <laughs> Back home in Sydney, at least the Bryan family's prayers for Gavin were answered when Starlog 4B was liberated by the Red Army on the 23rd of April 1945. By early May, Gavin was safely in England and he'd return home in July. By then, Lindsay Bryan was back in action on the repaired Hobart as it supported the Allied invasion of Tarakan, Brunei and Balakpapan. Then, on the 6th of August 1945, came the atomic destruction of Hiroshima and three days later, the atomic blast that devastated Nagasaki. Less than a week after that, the Japanese surrendered. The Second World War was over. Lindsay Bryan would be on the Hobart in Tokyo Bay to see the surrender signed on the 2nd of September 1945. Gavin was home, Lindsay would be coming home. All the Bryan family could do was hope that Colin had survived in Changi. They'd heard nothing from him for two years now. In Changi, on August the 15th and 16th, the news of Japan's surrender had spread and Colin and his mates saw the evidence with their own eyes. The guards were gone. American planes started dropping supplies. Singapore was retaken on the 4th of September 1945 and Changi was liberated the following day. Yet still Colin's family didn't know whether he was alive. As the Bulletin magazine noted in its 5th of September issue, information about POWs was meagre and the names of only 250 rescued men were then known, and even less was known about their health, though it was presumed to be poor. On Friday the 14th of September, Colin's family got the good news when his name appeared in published lists of POWs found alive. Right after that, they received two cheery letters from Colin. In one, he said he was well and working as a cook for the other men as they all awaited repatriation. In the other letter, he said he had three years' worth of the racing form to catch up on. Colin made no mention of how close he'd come to losing his head and what he'd endured after that. On Wednesday the 19th of September in Singapore, Colin told his story simply and clearly to Alan Dawes. Alan Dawes was one of the most trusted names in Australian war reporting. He'd been a frontline correspondent in Darwin during the bombings and then with Allied troops in New Guinea, Borneo, Java and the islands. Alan Dawes' article began, quote, Today an Australian soldier told me the story of his execution. He is NX49427, Private Colin Bryan of Dremoyne, Sydney, who leaves for home today in the troopship Duntroon. Alan Dawes described Colin's weight loss and what he'd been through. Quote, his amazing story is supported by ghastly evidence, a great crater at the back of his neck, a great gash from shoulder to shoulder, and a crescent-shaped scar on his forehead. 18 when he enlisted, Brian was only 19 when he knelt before the Japanese headsman. Later, it was discovered that the executioner's sword had just penetrated the bone without touching the spinal cord. This is his story as he told it. He didn't want to tell it, and it was vouched for by his mates. What followed was a long quote comprising the story that we've heard. Alan Dawes' article finished, quote, Brian's story has long since been officially recorded in the list of crimes with which the Japs have been charged. Alan Dawes' article was front page all across Australia by that afternoon. The news in Adelaide ran with the headline, Survive Stroke of Hedman's Sword. Melbourne's Herald's front page headline was, Faced Jap Executioner and Still Lives. Two of Colin's old hometowns would claim him as their own. The Narandera Argus and Riverina Advertiser went with former Narandera lads' experiences almost beheaded by Japs. The Daily Advertiser in Wagga Wagga's headline was Soldier Who Survived Headman's Sword, Former Junee Boy. 
Reading the news for the first time in Sydney, Colin's parents were amazed and appalled. Their youngest daughter, Joy, aged 16, was physically ill when she learned what her older brother had been through. Sydney's The Sun newspaper followed up with Frances and Agnes the next day. She told them that Lindsay's ship Hobart was due to arrive tomorrow. Quote, After all these years with our three boys away and the suspense of having two of them prisoners of war, it will be simply wonderful to have them back within a fortnight. Frances Bryan said, quote, We just can't believe Colin is coming home. The first former POWs from Singapore arrived in Sydney by Catalina flying boats on the 16th of September, followed by ships arriving with hundreds of men at the end of the month. 5,000 men were due in early October. The converted merchant vessel Duntroon sailed into Sydney Harbour early on the morning of the 7th of October, with 747 former prisoners of war aboard. These men stood on every possible vantage point on the ship, bathing in brilliant spring sunshine as all around them people on yachts, small boats and ferries cheered and blew whistles and sounded sirens. North Bondi lifesavers in racing uniform rode a surfboat alongside the Duntroon. Despite it being a Sunday morning, some 20,000 people lined Sydney streets and foreshores. There was a huge crowd at Mrs Macquarie's chair and everyone was cheering and crying, honking car horns and waving Union Jack flags. A Daily Telegraph article recounted this jubilation and told a few capsule versions of POW stories. The one it told first and in most detail was that of Colin Fleming Bryan. And it was his photo that accompanied the article, a three-quarter profile shot of him turned to camera, dark-eyed, unsmiling. Colin would soon undergo plastic surgery to try to fix the hole in the back of his neck that was described as being big enough to put part of your fist in. As for other less visible wounds, they'd take longer to heal, if they ever did. Collins' record states that on the 22nd of February 1946, he was, quote, discharged at own request on compassionate grounds. The war was over and Colin was no longer in uniform, yet his duty wasn't done. On the 16th of December 1946 in Tokyo, Mr Justice Alan Mansfield opened the final Australian phase of the Far East International War Crimes Tribunal. Colin was his first witness. The accused were 14 major Japanese war criminals, including General Hideki Tojo, Admiral Togo, General Doihara, Shigemitsu, and others. Colin told his story clearly and simply, and at Justice Alan Mansfield's request, he showed the court his neck wound. Justice Mansfield asked him, quote, were you at any time charged with having committed any offence or given any form of trial? Colin answered, no, at no time was I charged with any offence or charged or given a trial whatsoever. At another point, Justice Mansfield asked, Now, was there any mention made at any time during your interrogation or any actions that might lead the Japanese to think you were a spy? Colin, no. Now, was there reason given to you by anyone for, as you say, you going to meet your God? There was no reason given whatever. Do you know what the significance of the sword might have that you described? Yes, I immediately knew that I was going to be the victim of an execution party. I gave my evidence in the courtroom, which was a part of the collective evidence of war crimes committed by the Japanese during the war. And I feel sure that my story and that of others in my group helped to, to convict the Japanese major war criminals of those crimes committed in the war. Subsequently, Tojo and others were sentenced and executed. While Collins' evidence helped to convict Japanese war criminals, of course, he wasn't able to identify his own would-be executioners. In any case, he felt they'd already likely gone to meet their god after being killed in action in Burma or New Guinea. Colin Fleming Bryan had contributed to justice being done in peacetime, but for him, 
peace would be a long time coming. Post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't recognised then. Men had shell shock and it wasn't talked about. Even speaking to Tim Bowden in 1983, Colin was reticent, saying, uh, For five years after war, I was in a state of limbo, really. It wasn't until about 1950 that I commenced to come good uh, on a psychiatric basis, not that I was ever a crazy person. While it's widely acknowledged that many men didn't talk about their experiences, what's less understood is that not only were they not encouraged to, they were actually discouraged from trying to express themselves. Russell Braddon, another Changi prisoner of war, whose story we'll look at in another episode, said this, When we first got back, there seemed to be this wall of almost willful incomprehension. Subsequently, we learned that the medical experts had advised our parents and friends when we got back not to encourage us to talk about it, to steer us away from it. We were all, they said in effect, as mad as hatters, and it was dangerous to let us rattle on. So we would start talking about what had happened, and instantly people were busy changing the subject. Once Colin recovered sufficiently from what he'd call his limbo, he went to work for a company that traded in New Guinea. And over the next quarter of a century, this would put him in contact with Japanese people. Like many men who'd been through what he had, Colin said, I think back of those things, sometimes bitterly. As far as I'm concerned, what happened here in the war, I will never forgive and I will never forget. Yet he also said, Yes, I can meet Japanese at any time because uh, for 25 years I was working in New Guinea after the war as a business company manager, importing, exporting. We had a great deal to deal with Japanese business people and there was no inhibitions on my part in regard to my relations with those people. And I still accept the fact that we trade with Japan and we must live normal uh, we, we must follow normal practices in regard to those matters. Colin Bryan didn't marry, so whatever ongoing mental trauma he suffered, he had to get through much of it alone. His physical wounds also gave him ongoing grief. In the 1970s, he had four separate operations to take grenade fragments out of his body. The last one was in 1979, when I was flown seriously ill from New Guinea to Greenstaff's Repatriation Hospital. And after curing an infection, the doctors removed a piece of grenade struggle from below my heart, which had been causing recurrent abscesses in the area between the heart and the stomach wall since 1970. <laughs> my eyes are not good. My hearing is not good. I suffer with nerves. I'm constantly under the care of the Department of Veterans Affairs. <laughs> Despite all of this, Colin said that he was happy in retirement and that he enjoyed gardening, seeing friends and doing his family tree research and writing. Colin Fleming Bryan died at the age of 91 on the 15th of November 2013 at Narang on the Gold Coast. Few people have ever survived what Colin Bryan did. And think about how it must have been for him for the rest of his life, working in the tropics and living in Queensland. When he went to wipe the sweat from his neck or took a shower or had a bath, he would have been reminded of how close he'd come to dying in that clearing and also been reminded of all the cruelty that came afterwards. Impossible to forget for 71 years. I found a reference to Colin in the August 2014 issue of Barbed Wire and Bamboo, the official newsletter of the Ex-Prisoners of War Association of Australia. Having heard the news of his passing, Norm Anderton wrote to say that, like Colin, he'd been wounded in the back during the battle for Singapore and, after the war, he'd worked in New Guinea. Quote, I had been returned to Changi and just happened to be at the hospital set up in Salarang Barracks when they brought Colin in. I can remember it as if it were just yesterday. He had a gaping wound in the back of his neck that was filled with maggots. A medical orderly was sitting on the side of the bed with a pair of tweezers and a kidney dish removing the maggots. 
The maggots probably saved his life as they prevented the wound from becoming infected. It was a miracle that his spine or spinal cord weren't severed. Norm Anderson wrote that he was a member of the XPOW Gold Coast branch. So was the man that he'd seen more than 70 years earlier in Changi. Yet Norm didn't realise they were one and the same because he never saw Colin. Quote, Although Colin was a member of our branch and supported us financially, he never attended any of our meetings. I had no idea he was the man I saw that day in Changi until I read about his death in the PNG Bulletin. Norman Collins' work in New Guinea meant they had friends in common, and Norm offered this haunting image of how Colin had lived with coming so close to death and bearing the scars ever after. Quote, A friend of mine who worked with Colin in PNG told me that while all the men wore shorts, long socks, and white shirts with the collar down, Colin wore his shirt with the collar up to hide the hideous wound at the back of his neck. Colin Fleming Bryan was scarred, but to be scarred means you're alive. And he put his survival down to this. Several things. My youth. I'd only turned 19. I was uh, young and healthy. I had a uh, great determination to live. Not, I was not unintelligent. I was aware of things happening around me, and I wanted to live like every other soldier. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Many thanks again to Tim Bowden for allowing me to use excerpts from his 1983 interview with Colin. To hear the full 40-minute interview, go to the Australian War Memorial's website, www.awm.gov.au forward slash collection forward slash C1006600. To learn more about Tim Bowden's work and to buy his books, go to www.timbowden.com.au. Forgotten Australia will return with a new episode soon. In the meantime, check out my other show, Australia on This Day. And if you're a fan of both or either, I'd love it if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.